Hey, this is Big Rev. Thanks for tuning in to Masterclass Theology, a weekly podcast where we study books of the Bible a verse at a time and apply it to our lives. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let's rock. All right, welcome everybody. Let's get started here. We are in the book of 2 Peter. And I was reading an interesting article about, about Peter the other day. And I usually, I usually am a little too hard on Peter. As in, there's no way this guy could have any kind of knowledge of this or that. Or there's, I mean, you look at 1 Peter, like, wow, that's great Greek. And 2 Peter, yeah, maybe not so much. And we want to say, wow, that's probably Peter's. He probably did write it because it's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit different style. And it's a little bit lesser of a style. But I don't think we're giving Peter too much credit. Uh, Peter most likely was from a middle class family because he, I mean, he had a fishing business. If we take the, the text at face value, he had multiple boats when the great catch of fish happened, the miracle, because he called the other boat to come and the other boat came. So they were beholden to him in some ways. So Peter might just have been a middle class guy with a working man's income. He might have had some access. He's, his family lived in the Decapolis region of, of Israel where there's a lot of Greek speakers. Peter might have had a lot of access to Greek. I mean, there, there's, I, I, it's easy to look at Peter. He's a, he's a, I know people thought he was just a simple fisherman. I know when he came before an axe and the, the Sanhedrin looked at him like, what is this? These are unlearned men. That might have been the impression, but Peter may have had some education. He most likely was the oldest of the disciples because, or at least he was up there because, I mean, he was, we assume he was married. He had a mother-in-law. Like I like to joke about, you, 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 you marry a wife and you get a mother-in-law. You don't just take the mother-in-law and, oh, I can leave the wife, I guess. I could, I, I could just not have her, but give me the mother-in-law. No, you, you, you marry someone, an in-law comes with so Peter might just have just have much have had a Greek background. He may have had some chops about him. Now, though that's just speculation, but just looking what Scripture gives us, I don't think it's fair anymore to beat up on Peter's education level. That's just the text as a warranted. The impression was he was an unlearned fisherman. But with that said, in First Peter, whoever he had to, to write this down for him, if it was Silas or Silvanus, that person had some Greek chops. The amanuensis, they called it, a professional scribe that, that dictated things. That person, so, so we look at the doctrine of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit inspires the writers of Scripture. That means that Holy Spirit inspiration would be also part of that resting upon the amanuensis as, he's, as he writes, so that it truly is the Word of God. But with that said, he may have had a different amanuensis in Second Peter, this may have been his own hand at work. I don't know. We just don't know that. But we come to 2 Peter tonight. And we begin this journey. 2 Peter is actually a difficult little book. It's, tonight's not going to be much of a challenge. But it is going to be a fun little journey. We're going to do three weeks in 2 Peter. And we just finished our series in 1 Peter. And, and if you have not heard that, especially on podcast land, if you're listening, please Go back and check those out. And uh, we, we really you know, had at least eight sessions digging through First Peter. So let me open up the word of prayer and we'll get started. 
God, we thank you for this evening. I'm thankful for those who are here in person and for those on Zoom and those out there in podcast land. I'm thankful, God, that you're of your faithfulness. And you are a faithful God. You care for us. You are both good and God. And we acknowledge your, your greatness and we, your, we, we give you glory. And we are just so thankful. We're thankful tonight for this book of 2 Peter. And we're thankful for the fact that you used a Peter, even a Peter. And we just pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, so again, if you don't know the sound of my voice, I'm Big Rev, and this is Masterclass Theology. And it's an honor to be teaching this class tonight. So we're in 2 Peter chapter 1. And uh, let's, just, let's just read the first four verses here. I've got things down with, uh, with letter E. We've got everything, effort, and established, and eyewitnesses is where we're going to go tonight. But before we go, I want to share something from... Luke chapter 22. This is kind of a creepy moment with Jesus. And you'll, you'll get the creepy here just in a second. Not that Jesus is a creep, but the subject matter is just a little odd. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as we. So they're at the Last Supper. Okay, they're, they're dipping the bread and the wine and and Jesus is telling them all that one of you is going to betray me, not I, Lord. Okay, so, so when they get to the end of the meal and, and Jesus says something that is something that only Jesus, God, could know. The conversation happening between God and Satan? Really? See, I told you it was a little creepy. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to, to sift all of you. He's speaking to all of the remaining disciples or the apostles. To sift you as wheat. And what we get is the idea of threshing where they would take, they would take the wheat on a, on a winnowing hook, a winnowing fork, and they would toss it in the air, and the wind would hit it. And it would blow away the stuff that is not supposed to be eaten, the chaff. It would just blow to the side, and the wheat would fall. And that's how you would separate the wheat from the chaff. So you're sifting the wheat. Okay, this is what you did in a, in a threshing room floor, like in the book of Ruth. So Satan, evidently, this is a conversation we're not privy to otherwise. Somehow in, the, in, in the, the chambers of heaven, or I don't know how it happens, but Jesus knows about it. Whether Satan's directly asking Jesus, or he's asking the heavenly throne room, and Jesus gets wind of it. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. So we begin everything one one to four simon peter i like this simon peter doesn't call himself peter he brings up his real name simon a version of the tribe name of simeon i'm simon peter a servant and apostle of jesus christ to those who through, who through the righteousness of god our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. 
What a humble opening. Peter here. Simon, Simon. It's just a reminder that Jesus called him Simon. His name is Simon. And, and, and Jesus said, I'm going to call you Peter. But first your name's Simon. When Jesus says Simon, Peter perks up. I like this humble opening. Peter, remember, this is the Peter. There's no one like Peter. Even random atheists know about St. Peter and the pearly gates or whatever they want to say about that. They probably have something to say about it. You could ask anybody who'd never held a Bible. You know who St. Peter is? Oh, yeah, I could tell you about him. Everybody knows Peter. You don't have to explain Peter. We would expect Peter to start with apostle. No. He starts with servant. It's a humble opening for Peter. A servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received his faith as precious as ours. So you have a humble opening. We also see how Peter viewed Jesus. How did he view Jesus? He has a very high view of Jesus, doesn't he? This is Peter, the one who traveled with Jesus. You could argue nobody was as close to Jesus as Peter was. You may or may not be right. But he was part of that inner three. Those three guys know him was closer. I mean, seriously. He viewed Jesus highly. Through Jesus Christ, we've received a faith. What Jesus accomplished, Romans 5.19, check this out. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, and, and Paul's talking about Adam and then Jesus, a contrast there. So also through the obedience of, of the one man, the many will be, be made righteous. What did Jesus accomplish? Peter is saying here in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, in verse, it's still verse 1, through the righteousness of our God and, and our Savior Jesus Christ. Oh, by the way, who, how did he view Jesus? Jesus, he views Jesus, according to 2 Peter verse 1, he is both God and He's Savior. Who's Jesus? Oh, He's my Savior. Correct. But He's something even more profound than that. Those who are Jehovah's Witness won't agree with this next part. Those who are Jewish, who are Muslim, who are, well, some branches of Mormonism, that He is God. He viewed Jesus as Savior and God, God and Savior. But what did Jesus do? Well, this, this verse in Romans 5 gives us the idea that Jesus' righteousness accomplished something here. And we get this idea, through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, we have a faith. How is that possible? Because through the righteousness of that one man, the many will be made righteous. We get the idea that on the cross, the most unjust thing happened. That he took upon himself my sin, my unrighteousness, and he gave me, or a theologian would say, imputed to me, he gave me his righteousness. So that God, when God the Father looks at God the Son, he sees my wickedness. And when God the Father looks at me, he now sees Christ's righteousness. And that is unfair. And that is unjust. He who is without sin became sin. It's the greatest news a sinner like me will ever hear. And we got that as the background here. That's how Peter can say, through the righteousness of our God and Savior, we've received that faith as precious as ours. He's speaking of that transaction on the cross. 
that happened. Oh, well, how did Peter view his readers? Grace and peace be yours in abundance. A faith as precious as ours. Ours. Peter said he's a servant. Peter said he's an apostle. So a natural reader is going to go, Peter's levitating above them all. That Peter's up here. And the rest of us are kind of down here somewhere because we're not an apostle. And that's true, we're not. Nobody is like Peter in that regard. But that's not how Peter viewed his readers. Peter viewed his readers as a faith as precious as ours. Peter sees himself the same as anybody else. Christian, Peter views you as his equal in this regard. You are in his conversation. That's how he views the ones he's writing to. A faith precious as ours. So now grace and peace be yours in abundance. Through the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Verse 3, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. What was the temptation that Peter's readers faced? It's a temptation that we face too. And that temptation is this. The Bible, you're great. You know, God, you know, we're good. I mean, I'm good with you. And, you know, this Bible thing, I, I get it. I loved the Sunday school as a kid. I love all the stories. I, I, I'm digging the, the sermons. I mean, I go to church. I'm doing this thing. I, I watch my videos. I, do, I mean, I got my private time. Bible, you're good. You handle things that you're designed to handle, and we're good. But the temptation is I need more. I need something more. I need something else. And at this time period, there was this group, there was this, this, this cult that was called Gnosticism. And the, Gnostic, the Gnostics, this idea of, is based upon the word gnosis or gnosis in Greek, this idea of knowledge, secret knowledge that they had. And ironically, they used Peter. They said that the, the apostles had something special and extra from Jesus. And then they could pass it on to other people who had something special and extra. And this special and extra knowledge could be passed on. You've got the Bible, but you really need to upgrade your app to get the full experience, if you catch my drift. You need this extra something special. And Peter's saying, hold on here. This whole divine power, this revelation through the word that he's going to explain in the end of our chapter tonight has given us everything we need. And I've learned as a biblical counselor, though, as we counsel people, we open up God's word and we say God's word is sufficient to handle what we need to handle. It is enough. And I like to say, if you, if, you, if you can take one step back, the Bible handles everything. And my example I use is, well, the Bible doesn't tell me, you know, doesn't talk about computers. Okay. But take one step back, and the Bible talks about me. It talks about me and how I should live this life. You know, like a 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether I eat or drink, whatever I do. And that whatever I do includes when I get on my computer, do it all for the glory of God. So if you take one step back, you see the Bible handles computers just fine. Because you can't take that verse in 1 Corinthians 10 out of context. It's impossible that whatever you do includes everything. So as a biblical counselor, we look at that and say, no, the Bible is sufficient. The Bible is sufficient. Everything you need 
But here they're looking at, they're, they're being tempted by these Gnostics. They're being tempted by, we have special things. And you've got your Jesus, you've got your Bible, you're good. But I tell you what, you need this too. And I've got to give you this. And you need something more. And Peter's not having that one bit. You have everything you need for a godly life. Kind of like saying you want to live your best life now. you got to now do, you have A, B, and C, but now I'll give you the D, E, and F. To have your best possible life, you've got to have more than the Bible, they would say. No. Has given us, verse, four, verse 3, everything we need for a godly life. Through our knowledge of him who calls us by his own glory and good, who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us the very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. Oh, wow. That one's a bit hard. Some of you who found out we were reading 2 Peter 1 tonight are going, what's he going to do with verse 4? Oh, my goodness. Okay, so that through these promises, he's speaking of the promises, you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world caused by its evil desires. So if you've escaped something, that means that that, that thing you escaped was in the past. And that means it was something that was former. That was something that used to be. But now you're in something that is now. Something that is current. Something that is new. Sounds like Colossians 3. You have taken off your old self with its practices, with its practices and have put on the new self. And that pictures you've taken off that old shirt, okay, and you're putting on a new shirt. That's the idea, taking off, putting on, okay? You've taken off your old self with all of its practices and have put on the new self. But then Peter, or excuse me, Paul in Colossians 3 keeps going. This new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. There's something about this new you that is less you and more Jesus. That is less mundane and more holy. If you believe in the doctrine of progressive sanctification that says when you were a Christian, you progressively get less like you and more like Jesus, and that's what the Holy Spirit is doing, then you're not at all surprised when you're participating in the divine nature. Because if we truly believe that that's what God is doing in our heart, helping us to be less like the old Joel and more like this new Joel in Christ... He's helping me to be more like Jesus. That's all I can do to participate in the divine nature, because I am not divine. So when God made, let us make man in our own image, in our own likeness, this is the end product that the Holy Spirit causes Jesus to increase in me and me to decrease in me. Because through these very promises, having escaped the corruption of the world caused by these evil desires... That means the evil desires aren't winning. They're not the final chapter. So we get to experience renewal and regeneration. That's how we participate in the divine nature. You know, Romans 12, we were, we're transformed by the renewal of our minds. We're, 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 those of us who say, well, I'm born again, you are regenerated. You're now born of the Spirit. There's something new about you that belongs completely to Jesus. To call him Lord? The idea of uh, I am the vine, you are the branches. Without me, Jesus, you're not going to bear any fruit, but now you remain in me as I remain in you. 
That sounds like a participation. That's, uh, that's John 15. That sounds like a participation in the divine nature. If I'm remaining in God and he's remaining in me and we, together we're bearing fruit for his glory. Now this doesn't mean that I'm God. Oh, certainly not. It doesn't mean that I'm the one driving the train like I'm sovereign. Oh, most certainly not. But there's some mystery there. Well, when I belong to Christ, the Holy Spirit, who now I have the righteousness given to me by Christ, now I get to participate in that righteousness. That divine nature that never was mine. But now I can be renewed and regenerated. There's something about that. We've got to see where Peter goes with this. Before we do that, ponder for just a moment your old self and your new self. What about you? What about you, the old you that keeps coming back? That old you before Christ. The former you. What needs to stop about this? The former you. What about you needs to be a reality now in Christ? Your new you. What about you, about your character, about your per whatever attitude needs to be taken off that old you? And what about you needs to be put on each day? Ponder that for one second. That was everything. 5 to 11, effort. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness. And to goodness, knowledge. Ah, so he brings up the, 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 the knowledge saying, the gnosis. Okay, so all the Gnostics out there are going, oh, yeah, yeah, we have, we have, the, we have the knowledge part. Yeah, that's right, the, the special knowledge. I don't know, that's not where he's going. Add to your faith goodness to goodness knowledge to knowledge self-control. Boom. That self-control with that knowledge. There we go, self-control. And a self-control perseverance and a perseverance godliness. And a godliness is mutual affection and a mutual affection love. If you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. My goodness. You see, the Christian character bears fruit. We remember Luke chapter 3 John the Baptist said, he's, he's, he's out there, he's baptizing people, and a bunch of people came to him. He says, you brood of vipers, who warned you about this? And he tells them, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. So you're going to repent, are you? Well, that's good. That means you're going to turn from the old you and turn to Jesus. But now that repentance should have fruit. You should be growing fruit in your repentance. Otherwise, you're making the mistake I did as a younger man. I would confess my sins and keep doing my sins. Oh, I was a hypocrite. I produced zero fruit of my repentance. I'm so thankful God didn't strike me down. He still had a plan for me. So somehow could use my story for his glory. I look back at that time in my life and just, I'm just, I'm so much regret. I fight the shame from that time period. I don't wallow in that shame, but I fight it. So what do we do? What do we do with this? How do we produce fruit? How is that possible? We've got this idea here that you need to be adding character things to your expansion pack. To use a video game analogy there. There's something about you and your faith that needs to continue. 
you need to grow fruit. What fruit do you need to grow? Well, let's start with goodness. And now you need to keep growing in knowledge, yes. Self-control. You know, some of these sound like the fruits of the Spirit, don't they? I mean, I, I see some, some similarities here. Perseverance, perseverance. Remember who's he talking to? People who are getting their tails whipped by the Roman Empire. In this kind of armpit part of the world. We talked about that during our time in First Peter. They need these things. They need their non-Christian Roman friends and neighbors to see these things on their tree. So, the, the Christian character bears fruit. But this idea of an increase, we got the prodigal's increasing journey after the fattened calf. Joel, what are you talking about? Well, let's play with that story for just one second. The prodigal returns to dad. Dad runs. The only time in scripture where God or a God character is said to run, he runs towards that prodigal son returning home, throws his arms around him, gives him a kiss, bring, kill the fattened calf. My son who is lost is now is found. I'm, I'm extrapolating here. But there it is. Now the big celebration, the fattened calf, the feast. My son is home. Hurrah, hurrah. He's been reconciled with the father. There he is. Now, it ends there, doesn't it? And there's a conversation between the older brother and the father, some bitterness or whatnot. Okay, but, it, but otherwise it ends there. But we're left to surmise what comes next. Oh, returning prodigal. There needs to be an increase. Verse 8, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, there needs to be an increase in our life. As we grow, there's some part of us, as we get older, the last thing I'm trying to lose weight. I don't need to be increasing at all. I'm trying to decrease. But there's something about our faith that needs to keep increasing in certain areas. That's the prodigal's journey. That prodigal is me. That prodigal is also you. If you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive. That's what life looks like if, 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 if you do this. We all want to be effective. We all want to be productive. There's something about you that if you're not living this way, you're not living the right way. You're not living the life that, that, that is expected of you. God expects you to bear fruit. We know that because when Jesus talks about the branches that don't bear fruit are thrown into the flames and are burned, the expectation is that you are to grow. The expectation is that you continue to trust and that by that you're letting that light shine before men and they see those good works and they glorify the Father. You see, I want to be effective in, in this life, in this ministry as a man, as, as a husband, as a father as a son, as a brother. I want to be effective and productive in my knowledge of God. I don't want that just to be head knowledge. That's a seminary trap. The seminary trap is I spent all this time learning about God and didn't get to know God. Because if I know God, Jesus says, don't call me Lord, Lord, and then don't do what I say. See, knowledge of Jesus is not enough. You've got to do it. And so that's he's one more shot across the bow against these Gnostics. All this knowledge you're piling on. No, that knowledge needs to lead to something. Otherwise, you're ineffective and unproductive. You're just, you know, so if you put this into practice, you, you, you are going to be effective and productive. But if you don't put it into practice, you're going to be nearsighted and blind. So blind is that you can't see at all, but nearsighted in, this, in the sense that you just have no perspective at all. 
forgetting they've been cleansed from their past sins. We get the idea that this is something that we get the idea that Satan likes to do. He likes to bring up your past and likes to beat you with it. How could you be forgiven? Do you know what you've done? Does someone else know what you've done? I know you pray to God, but have you talked to someone else about it? I don't think they would forgive you. Why would God forgive you? See, Satan comes at us that way. Satan keeps that regret and that sorrow in the crock pot. Keeps us feeling depressed. And we latch onto that. And we believe the lies. We can't do that. We can't forget that we have been cleansed from our past sins. We can't forget of 1 John 1, 9, that he is faithful. Because otherwise we get nearsighted. I, can't, I take my glasses off, I'm nearsighted. I take my glasses off and the, the back of the room is kind of fuzzy. I don't pay much attention to the back of the room at this point. I can't really see it that well. That's the point. I don't have the perspective I require. That perspective is necessary. You won't have that perspective if you forget. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. I get the idea. I just recently traveled on a plane. And once you get that boarding pass, you are good. It used to be you get your ticket punched. You get that boarding pass, and that allows you to keep going through the, 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 the bowels of the airport to finally reach your gate. And you get on the plane with your boarding pass. You board the plane with a boarding pass. But once you've got that boarding pass, everything is secure. You're in. Okay, and if something were to happen, that's a different issue. But, but there, there's something secure about that moment. Yeah, you still have to go through hoops. You guys still got to go through these things. And, you know, post 9-11, we got to go through securities and various, all these things. And we have to now wear masks and all these, all, all these things. Take our shoes off, take our belts off. There's a lot of hoops we got to go through. But that boarding pass, I'm getting on the plane. These people are going through a lot. But see, I made every effort in that airport to get to that gate. My boarding pass in hand. Now, in salvation speaking, I didn't pay for that boarding pass. I didn't earn that boarding pass. I don't deserve that boarding pass. I don't deserve to go to heaven on my own. I cannot deserve it, earn it, buy it, nothing. Okay. But I make every effort to confirm that calling, that very election. Yes, God chose me. Even me. That helps me to remember what I need to remember. Make every effort to confirm that. Live as if you're holding that boarding pass. Have eternity in mind. He says, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. You will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Have eternity in mind. But what about never stumble? What does remember who's writing this? The great stumbler himself. Did anyone ever stumble as much as Peter stumbled? The original foot-in-mouth disease apostle? I mean, seriously? Yeah. I think he's talking about eternity here. I think he's talking about our security and our faith. You're confirming this calling and election so you're not going to stumble. What would be the stumbling there? The stumbling could be this. I've messed up one too many times. The great divine scale of my good works versus my bad works. I won too many. It's going to start tipping. You know, it's like those old scales where you step on them, you little move the weights, and they kind of balance a little bit to figure out what your weight is. And, and you can't get it quite right, so you kind of sheepishly tell the person helping you to weigh, move it a little bit heavier, we'll see what it does. You know, you move the bar, and all of a sudden it starts to balance again. Like, okay, great. I've had a few times where I had lost weight, 
and, and the doctor had put it on a heavier setting and it was just way off. He's like, that can't be right. What's going on here? And I said, well, I'm just saying, Doc, could we just make it a little bit lighter and see what happens? Oh, yeah, make it lighter, huh? So I, I moved it over and it started to balance. And, he's, and he looked at me and goes, well, all right. That's what I like to see. We're tempted to say, I've done one too many times, and so I'm over the limit, and God's going to throw me away, and I've lost everything, and that this boarding pass is nothing. No. If you've been called and elected by God, ain't nobody out choosing God. You're not out electing God. You're not out calling God. You're called. You're elected. That would be a chief way we stumble, especially if we have a cult coming after us like they did, saying, you don't know if you're really in until you do these extra special things, and then you can know. Then maybe if you do these extra special little hoops to jump through that we got secretly from Peter and the apostles, and this is Peter saying, no, you didn't. The Bible is everything you need. Okay? Because he's talking about eternity here. Don't stumble. In fact, you'll receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom. That's what we want. As we go to sleep at night, picture that, that well done, thou good and faithful servant, welcome. The great big hug. I like to picture it like a hug. Welcome. That great welcome into this eternal kingdom. You see, we stumble if we start to give conditions on that. If we start to say, yeah, but, when it comes to God. But God couldn't have really have meant it when he said, I'm in. No. You're making every effort to confirm that calling so you'll knock that off. That doubting. You're confirming it. It doesn't mean you're providing it. It doesn't mean that you're responsible for it. Certainly not. All I brought to salvation is a sin that needed to be dealt with. That's my story. I, I, I imagine it's yours too. So that's everything. That's effort. So consider what gets... Um, and that's Peter's example, the great stumbler. The last thing we want to hear from him, by the way, is don't stumble. That's all he seemed to do was stumble. Until we get to the book of Acts... I mean, it seems like every time he's mentioned, he's doing something odd. He had a couple good moments. We're not going to just beat on him. I started with that. I can't beat on Peter anymore. Dude was one of two people in history that walked on water. We can't forget that. The laws of physics were officially denied underneath Peter's feet. Just saying. We've, you can go back in the podcast history. We had two weeks on Peter, a good week and a bad week. And one week we lifted Peter up. The other week we, we pointed out some not-so-good texts for his sake. Or some harder text for him. But yeah. He's saying you're, not gonna, you're, ne you're never going to stumble. No, you can't ever say never. You can only say never in the case of you're never going to lose salvation. Or all that the Father gives to me, nobody will ever snatch them out of my hand. Or anybody that's in the Father's hands, nobody will ever or never will snatch out of it. That's the only time you can say things like that. Or what can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Nothing. Nobody. You get the never like that. Big, big, big statements. This, I'm never going to stumble. Well, that's really nice coming from you, Peter. No, he's saying something deeper there. Because he's talking in the context here about eternity. No one's going to cause you to not have that boarding pass anymore. We'll continue that. Consider what gets most of your efforts. 12 to 15 established. 
So I will always remind you of these things, Peter writes, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. You see, truth is what establishes us. Jesus once said in John 17, the great high priest prayer, sanctify them by your truth, sanctify them in the truth. And he says, speaking to God, your word is truth. You see, that truth is like the roots of our tree. You know, we have trees in our yard right now and they're losing their branches. My, my, my five-year-old says, Daddy, the, the, the trees are pooping in the yard. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I guess they are. And I'm like, you know, blowing them with the blower and using the rake, trying to get them to the curb, that kind of thing. Daddy, why do the trees always poop in our yard? Well, you know, they do it every year. We remember that. We remember that the trees lose their leaves. You know, we're talking deciduous trees. The trees lose their leaves and they grow them back again. You see, there's something that's part of the roots of that tree that establishes that tree. And there's other parts of that tree that are kind of remember parts where they cycle through the year. And then it gets cold and the leaves on the tree, all that stuff kind of just dies or whatever, just goes away and then, and then comes back in the spring, the green things. Okay, we remember. You see, there's things about us, the truth establishes us. We are established. The boarding pass is in my hand. Now, what do I remember? The great memories that Peter talks about. God's faithfulness. God provided for you. Simon, Simon. Satan has asked to sift you all like wheat. But I'm praying, I'm praying that your faith may not fail. And when they have turned back, strengthen your brothers is what he's doing here. He wants to remind them there's things that are established. Hold on to those things, but also remember. Never stop remembering. It's like that song we sing. And I will sing of the goodness of God. Remember God's goodness. All my life you have been faithful. Yes. Remember all your life God's faithfulness. God's goodness. Remember God's faithfulness. And when you face trials right now, that memory comforts you. It gives you perspective. What I hold on to is Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that I am God. I say that to myself when I'm going through trial, I remember Psalm 31, but I trust you, God. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. I've got to remember to say, my times are in his hands. My times are in his hands. When I'm going through an anxiety moment, there's things I can't control. There's things I can control. What I can control is that moment right there. My times are in his hands. My attitude, my perspective, my response right there. I can't control what's going on. I can't control what other people are saying or doing or any of those things, but I can control that. My response, my response in life is rooted in the truth and refreshed by those memories. That's a great example. It's Peter's example. It ain't mine. That makes it even better. Eyewitnesses. So what, what about God do you hold on to? I gave you the two verses that, that keep, I hold on to deeply. What about, what about God do you hold on to? How has God been faithful? Eyewitnesses 16 to 21. For we do not follow cleverly devised stories. Ooh, he's taking another shot, isn't he? These Gnostics coming their way with their cleverly designed little isms and ologies and plans and all that kind of stuff. Oh, we have special this, special that. 
No, we didn't follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And then Peter brings up the Gospels right here. Because he was there. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, I wish I could have a James Earl Jones moment here. Because that's how I picture God's, God's voice, you know, Simba. This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Peter continues, we ourselves heard this voice. See, you don't forget a moment like that. Peter's not forgetting it. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were on him on the sacred mountain. Mark 9, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain when they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes, Jesus is talking about here, his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, this is not the best Peter moment, but it's kind of cute. Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters. One for you, one for Moshe, one for Eliyahu, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He and I like how Mark threw something in parentheses. Remember, Mark is Peter's boy. So you can imagine Peter going, yeah, I had no idea what I was talking about. Because Mark says, yeah, he had no idea what he wanted to say. He was so frightened. That's Peter talking right there. I know, it's through Mark. Okay, but fine. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. So Moses and Elijah are gone. Trivia, by the way, Moses was told he could never enter the promised land. He makes it right here on a technicality. He's standing on the promised land. I'm just saying, but we'll move that along. Okay. A little Moses trivia there. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone, oops, 2 Peter 1, what they had seen until the Son of Man had arisen from the dead. Okay, fine. He, he, by this point, Jesus is risen and he's ascended. Peter can talk now. And he does! 2 Peter 1. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. They had no idea. They had no idea there was going to be a cross and a tomb. They were conveniently boneheads. They didn't get it. And this is Peter now saying, but guess what? We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on that sacred mountain. We also have, have, have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Just talk about eternity there. About the end of days. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came by the prophet's own interpretation of things. We get people asking us, oh, so how is it that this God of yours wrote a Bible of how many books? Sixty, how many? And they all have different authors, or a lot of them have different authors. Some of them have the same author, we think, but you know what? Some of them don't. And how do they all get inspired by God over a period of, what, a thousand years? Maybe two? I mean, how many years were there between Moses and Jesus? I'm just saying. And they go through this whole highfalutin thing. There's no way this can be the Word of God, because all these human authors writing in all their different styles, writing in all their time periods, and all their geopolitical situations, you've got all these things. How can you dare say this is God's word? How could you dare say that a New Testament continues the Old Testament? How dare you, Christian, think that? It's because of this chapter right here. 
Above all, you must understand, verse 20, that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had an origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So that right there is the idea, the doctrine of inspiration of Scripture. That yes, it was written down by human hands. The lone exception being the writing on the wall. Or something like that, where there was a hand that Daniel talks about. Okay, fine. But Daniel wrote about that hand. So there he goes. So it's written by humans, but they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. So that's God the Holy Spirit. Fully God. It is His Word. The Bible is the Holy Spirit's. His. That's what Peter's saying here. Yeah, all these prophets are writing it down, but they were all, they were each inspired. So Moses writing the Pentateuch all the way to John writing Revelation were inspired by God the Holy Spirit. No cleverly devised stories. Peter is one of the three from Mark 9 who has the prophetic message. Yeah, there's a lot of people out there claiming prophetic messages. Peter's saying, I was one of a chosen few. And we know that. He was one of twelve. They alone have that message. They alone have that prophetic message in the sense of Holy Spirit inspired scripture. They alone. And if they weren't the apostles, they needed to be very much connected to an apostle, like a Mark, or like a Jude, or like a James. If they're not an apostle from the New Testament sense, or like a Luke who traveled with an apostle, Paul. You had to be connected, and it was all a very well-established thing. Because these people alone have that from the Holy Spirit. The prophecy, so anyone could claim a prophetic uttering. Anyone could claim there are countless YouTube videos, there are people making millions of dollars being called anointed prophets of this or that. This is not 1 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, because Peter says, Prophecy never came by that. There is no, verse 20, prophecy of Scripture. I don't need any of these other voices. I need Scripture. And unless you're arguing that any of these other so-called prophets are adding to the Word of God, then they're not accomplishing anything. All we need is God's Word. And if you need somebody outside of God's Word, then you're falling into the Gnostic trap that they fell into 2,000 years, or they were tempted to fall into 2,000 years ago. I, to say that I need something beyond God's word, I need something special, I need something unique, I need something to direct my path. No, no, no. We just need scripture. And scripture has stopped being inspired. The canon is closed. There is no more. So therefore, I'm either going to accept that as sufficient, I'm going to take Peter at his word that it indeed is all I need, or I'm going to need something more. And that's very dangerous territory. Is the Bible enough for you? 2 Peter 1. Big chunk of scripture tonight. Let's ask those questions again. Ponder the old self and the new self. Consider what gets most of your efforts. What about God do you hold on to? 
Is the Bible enough for you? Simon. Simon. Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. I pray that our, the word of God, 2 Peter chapter 1, was a great step in strengthening your faith tonight. This has been Big Rev for Masterclass Theology, 2 Peter chapter 1. Thank you for letting me share. This has been Masterclass Theology. I pray you've been challenged and encouraged during today's episode, and I hope you'll continue to join us as we journey through the Bible. God bless.